Who is he in yonder stall? Who is he? He comes with power to save and that he's born in a manger. Who is this man? And then after singing that song, we sang, Behold our God. Who is this man? Behold our God. And come, let us adore him. Not just behold him, but adore him. Who is he? Who is this man? That's the question the disciples ask in our text this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, Mark chapter 4 is where we are. And I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 4. We've been studying this amazing gospel, going verse by verse through it. And we've been asking the Lord to help us to do two things. Every time we gather together and we stare at this amazing book, we've been saying, God, please help us to stare at Christ and please help us to be transformed by him, transformed by staring at him. And this morning, what I want us to do is, just in response to those two songs that we sang, I want us to see who is he and to behold our God. In a very familiar section to many of you, a storm being stilled by our Savior. I want this text to wash over our souls that we would stare at Jesus and we'd be transformed by him. In the flow of this chapter, we've been going through all of the parables that Jesus has been teaching and he's been teaching publicly But now he is going to drift out into the Sea of Galilee and have a private lesson to teach his disciples. Let's read our text this morning, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, and ask God's blessing on our time. On that day, when evening came, Jesus said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? These are the words of our living, active, holy, 
gracious God. Let's ask his blessing on our time as we give careful attention to his word this morning. Father, we come before you in the same manner that we do every Lord's Day. And yet, as we've been studying in your word, this is no ordinary moment. It's a part of our routine. It's a part of our schedule. And we can become so used to it that we trivialize it and we feel that it is just normal. But this moment is not normal. It is anything but normal. It is supernatural. Because in these moments, you are speaking to us through your word. You are holding up Christ in front of our eyes. And you are addressing every single one of us in a specific way that we need to be addressed. Father, we know in your word, there is only one meaning that the text would have. And we want to see that meaning this morning. But there are billions of applications of that meaning. And so as we come to your word, we ask that you would apply it to our hearts, specifically to where we are at. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, so that we would see Christ and be transformed by him. We pray it in his precious and holy name. Amen. All of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this account. But it's very interesting because Mark is the shortest of the synoptic gospels. Matthew's longer, Luke is longer, Mark is the shortest. But Mark's account of this miracle is the longest. It's the most detailed. Typically, when you read the parallel passages... Uh, of Matthew and of Luke, they are far more detailed than what Mark is giving us because Mark is going very quickly. But here, he spills more ink on this specific account than Matthew and Luke. Why? I think it's because, remember, Mark is really Peter's gospel through Mark's pen. He's getting all of his testimony from Peter. And I think that this day is so lodged in Peter's mind and heart that Peter just cannot stop the flow of words and remembrances of what happened. And he just keeps talking and talking and talking. This is one of the most unforgettable experiences Peter has ever had. I don't know if you've ever had a near-death experience. You will not forget that. I've had about two in my lifetime. And I will never forget those two events and how God protected me and preserved me and cared for me and saved me. And that's what Peter is dealing with here. This story is straight from Peter's eyewitness account. He's on the boat. Mark wasn't there. Peter was. And he remembers precise details like there's other boats that are traveling with Jesus. Or that Jesus is asleep on a cushion. It's the word in Greek for a pillow. That he picked a pillow. He had the pillow. Maybe it was a pillow that he took from Capernaum. These are key elements to an eyewitness testimony. There's another storm in the Gospels where Jesus walks on the water. This is not that storm. That's in chapter 6 of Mark. We'll get to that soon. But I want to ask you, as you read through this, and 
Many of you know this account. I want to ask you, why is this story here? Why did Mark write this account? Why did he put this in to the narrative? We just saw Jesus teaching parables, teaching the crowds. He gets into the boat. It's been a long day of ministry, and he's going to go to the other side. And why does Mark include it? And that's, I just want to ask that question, and I want to go through it. And I want to answer that question at the end of our time. Why does Mark include this here? Why does he bring us this story with this detailed information at this point in the narrative? So let's just go through it together. Verse 35, on that day when evening came. So it's the same day of this long ministry uh, happening. This is all after the parables, all after the teachings. It's been a very long day in the um, study of the life of Christ, a chronology of the life of Christ. Uh, We actually refer to this as the long day of ministry. The day had begun peacefully. Jesus was teaching. Then it had gotten pretty crazy with some miracles and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then it had turned back into some weird stories and parables. And now there's a storm. This is a wild day and kind of a microcosm of life. (laughs) Some peaceful things, some crazy things, some difficult things. All I know is no one saw this storm coming. We typically don't see it either when storms are on the way. And some storms just don't even relent. But notice... Jesus says to the disciples, let us go over to the other side. And so they get in the boat and they go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. To notice, the disciples are not experiencing the storm that they're going to go through because of their disobedience. Some of the storms that we go through in our lives, we go through because of discipline, of God, uh, God's chastisement. But that's not why they're going through the storm. In fact, they're going through the storm precisely because of their obedience. Jesus says, let's go to the other side. They say yes, and because they obey Jesus, they're going to experience a storm. Which teaches us already that God brings his people through storms. God does that. J.C. Ryle says it this way. Serving the Lord does not exempt us from storms. God leads us through them for our greatest good, and we shall then thank God for every storm he brings us through. We will thank him for it. Verse 36, leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat. So they're leaving the crowd behind, this massive crowd that's listening to the parables. They leave them behind, and they go into the boat. In 1986, there was a discovery made of a boat a few miles south of Capernaum. You can see this boat in Israel today. It's a fishing boat that dates back to about 120 BC to 40 AD. So it would have been similar to the kind of boat that Jesus would be in in this very moment. You can see pictures of this boat on the internet if you want to Google it. It's 26 and a half feet long. It's seven and a half feet wide. It's four and a half feet high. It's a plain wooden boat and it holds about 15 people. And that's the boat that Jesus is in. And other boats, it says, are with him. Other boats are with them. That's helpful, number one, because there's eyewitness testimony of what's happening. They're following along with Jesus because they want to hear more teaching. They want to see more miracles. What's going to happen when he gets over to the other side? But it's also instructive that other boats are with him because it tells us that this day looks perfectly calm. 
No one expects this storm to happen because if it looked like a stormy day, I think people would have said, you know what? We'll find another way to get over to the other side. We're not going to go today. We're going to wait until the storm subsides. There's dark, ominous clouds in the sky. No, they, they look at the sky. They look at the sea. It's a beautiful day and we're going with Jesus. This is exactly what happens on the Sea of Galilee. At its longest point, the Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long. At its widest point, it's eight miles wide. It's about 150 feet deep. It's 700 feet below sea level. And right to the north of the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon, which has snow a lot during the year. And so the freezing cold air from Mount Hermon rushes down into the warm basin of the Sea of Galilee. And when that air mixes together, this is from your biology classes and weather stuff back in high school, where that mixes together and you're able to understand there's a massive storm that hits very rapidly, very quickly. Luke even uses that verbiage. He says that the storm descends on them, rushing down from Mount Hermon. Mark says in verse 37 that there arose a fierce gale of wind. That word fierce gale, it's two words in Greek. It's a word for hurricane and then the word mega in front of it. Megas hurricane. It's a mega hurricane. Matthew in Matthew 8, 24 says it's a seismos megas. It's a mega storm. In 1992, one such storm generated 10 foot high waves on the Sea of Galilee with winds up to 80 miles per hour, causing flooding and damage in Tiberias in the city that's right around the Sea of Galilee. The waves are breaking over the boat, verse 37, so much that the boat's already filling up with water. This is a huge storm. This is a massive storm because experienced sailors are going to say we're not going to make it. These men have gone through storms before. They know how to get out of storms, and they know when they're not going to get out of one. And they say we're perishing. We're dying. We're not getting out of this one. Just imagine that. We read this. We know this account. We read this account We're familiar with this account, but just imagine the wind and the waves. Wind so loud that you can't really hear the other person yelling right next to your ear. Water pouring over. You're freezing cold. You're trying as best you can to keep your balance. You're yelling to your friends, do this. And everybody's trying to fight to maintain control of this boat. I just imagine... That first disciple, we don't know who it would have been, but that first disciple, as he's fighting and trying to gain control of the boat and realizing we're not going to make it. And he just grabs onto the arm of the other disciple and he just shakes his head. Just stop. There's no way we're getting out of this. These men probably knew a lot of friends who had died on the Sea of Galilee. And their friends' faces are probably flashing through their memory right now as they realize we are going to die. What this storm is revealing is the control that the disciples thought they had was just a mirage. They're terrified. They're yelling. They're trying to get the water out of the boat. They're trying to figure out how to get the sail to do the right thing. They're trying to row. They're trying every which way to save themselves And Jesus, verse 38, 
is in the stern asleep. He's asleep. This is a beautiful display of the humanity of Jesus. He is the one who invented sleep. He created sleep and he himself is sleeping. And he's sleeping. He's so exhausted that in the midst of the hurricane-like weather, he still is able to sleep. I don't know if you've ever been this tired before when crazy things are going on around you and you just stay asleep. Many of you uh, new parents of little ones know exactly what this is like, where you're just so exhausted, you're so tired that there can be a lot of noise going on around you. There can be a lot of chaos going on and you can totally nap, totally contentedly. I love it. He's asleep. Interesting, he had just said, remember from last week, that the work of the farmer is to sow the seed and go to sleep. And that's literally what Jesus is doing. He sowed the seed through the word of God being proclaimed and now he's asleep. It's also interesting because we've seen multiple times already in this gospel where Jesus is awake when everyone's sleeping. And here we see Jesus sleeping when everyone else is awake. And I think that's such a good model for believers. We are up when the world is asleep seeking God. We love seeking after the Lord while the world is sleeping. And we're asleep. We're at peace when the world is frantically anxious about the chaos around them. Jesus is asleep. He's on a cushion. And he's asleep because he's in control. He can rest because he's in control. In fact, a sleeping Jesus is more in control than wide awake disciples. The snoring sovereign is snoring because he is sovereign. And the disciples wake him up, verse 38, and they say, Teacher, Rabbi, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? I love this because all of the synoptic gospels record different sayings. And I think it makes total sense that they would record different sayings because I think everybody in that boat is yelling different things at Jesus right now. Matthew says, save us, Lord, for we're perishing. Luke says, master, master, we are perishing. And Mark, which is getting his info from Peter. So maybe this is Peter. Literally, he's the one that's saying, do you not care? It's a very dark day when sailors call upon a carpenter for a solution in the midst of a storm. But notice what's happening here. This is so instructive for us. Notice what's happening. The disciples are looking at their circumstances. They see great danger, suffering, impending death. And because of that, they assume if God really loved us, he would keep us from this. And since he's not keeping us from this, then he must not love us. Their fear is trumping their theology. They know better, but their fear is negating all of that theology that they know. This happens to us all the time where something bad happens in our lives and we think, God, do you even care? This statement is very informative on two levels, on a practical level and a theological level. Practically, we tend to equate worry with concern. Do you not care that we're perishing? I don't know if you've ever been in the midst of something stressful, you're starting to freak out and your friend or your spouse or your coworker isn't freaking out with you. And you think you should be freaking out right now. I am, you should be too. And because you're not, I guess you don't care. 
That's what the disciples are doing. We're freaking out here, Jesus, and you aren't, so you must not care. We get frustrated when others refuse to get infected with our anxiety. The reality is there are times when people share our concern, but they don't share our worry, and that is a good thing. That's actually a Christ-like thing. Jesus is absolutely concerned for the disciples whom he loves, but he won't enter into their worry. So practically, this is helpful for us, but theologically, this is helpful for us. We tend to draw a line from our circumstances to the character of God. We tend to say, because my circumstances are bad, God must be bad. Because my circumstances are difficult and frustrating, then God must not care. We assume that a loving God would not let us suffer. Jesus is going to ultimately get up and say, why are you afraid? I think the disciples would say, really? You're going to ask us that question? For starters, we're afraid we're going to drown and die. But then we were even more afraid because we realized you were just going to let it happen. There was a fear over we're going to die. That's terrifying. But what's even more terrifying is the fact that you could have prevented this and you're letting this happen. You must not care about us. Because if you care about us, Jesus, you would have stopped our suffering. To which Jesus would say, your premise is wrong. Your premise is wrong because I allow people who I love to go through suffering. We can't draw a line from our circumstances to God's character. We need to draw a line from God's character to our circumstances. He loves us. So the suffering that we're going through is not because he doesn't love us. It's actually because he loves us. Every storm serves a purpose for every child of God. Jesus never likes to watch his loved ones squirm. He absolutely cares. The bad things that are going on in our lives are not because they are outside of his sovereignty or power or control. We may not know what God is doing in our suffering, but we can trust that he is doing something. Our suffering is never wasted. Our pain is never wasted It's never purposeless. Jesus would ultimately tell his disciples something to the effect of the reason that I'm in the boat with you is because I care about you. The reason I'm on earth is because I care about you. And the reason I'm going to the cross is because I care about you. I care about you. I love how Isaiah 40 verse 27 says it. Why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? God doesn't see. He must not care. Why do you stand up and say he doesn't care? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God gives strength to the weary. He cares for you. They cry out, you must not care. Do you not care that we're perishing? We're dying here. This, we're not getting out of this one. We're dying. You must not care. In verse 39, he gets up. Before speaking to his disciples, he rebukes the wind. And there's two amazing things that happen in this rebuke. Number one, it's amazing because the utter simplicity of Jesus' command in his rebuke against the wind is shocking. He's not bracing himself. He's not rolling up his sleeves. He's not standing with a strong stance of here we go and conjuring up power. He doesn't conjure up anything. He doesn't say in the name of such and such I command you. He just speaks to the wind and the waves like you'd speak to a noisy child. Just, shh, come here. 
How strange would it have been for these men to see their teacher speaking to the weather? Who does this? Be like somebody coming into your house. Some random person just starts coming into your house and starts bossing you around, telling you what to do, telling you to move furniture, put things in different places, and you look at them and you go, who are you? You're acting like you own the place. That's what Jesus is doing. He owns the place. He gets up and he says, I tell you what to do. The second amazing thing is not just the utter simplicity of Jesus' command, but that the wind and the waves obey him. The power of his voice reaches the weather, which doesn't even have the ability to hear or feel. He gets up, he rebukes the wind, he says, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Perfectly calm, that word perfectly in Greek is the word megas. So he had a mega storm and now we have a mega calm. I love the way Mark tells it to us. The wind died down and it became perfectly calm. That seems a bit redundant to say it became perfectly calm. You just told us the wind died down. But what is he saying here? He's saying the wind stopped and it, the sea and everything else around it, became instantly perfectly calm. Meaning that when Jesus said, peace, be still, hush, be still, everything stopped immediately and the effects of the storm stopped immediately. I remember growing up, we'd watch a little animated uh, cartoon about Jesus uh, stilling the, uh, the sea, the storm, calming the seas. And in the animation, Jesus wakes up and he says, hush, be still. And the dark clouds slowly move away and the wind dies down and the sail slowly goes back to normal. And the boat just slowly rocks and gets back to level. And though that makes sense in our brains, that's not what the text says. Because Jesus doesn't take care of this naturally. He takes care of it supernaturally. And as we've seen every other miracle in this book so far, Jesus doesn't just take care of the problem. He takes care of the effects of the problem. Remember when he heals Peter's mother-in-law who's dying of a fever. Once she is healed, she gets up and starts cooking and serving everybody. Remember the man with the withered hand. He's able to stretch out his hand. It's healed. It's restored. And he doesn't need physical therapy. Same with the paralytic dropped down in Mark chapter 2 through the roof. He's able to get up and walk out. He doesn't need any physical therapy. Even though his muscles would have atrophied, Jesus takes care of the problem and the effects of the problem. So just think about this in your mind. Picture Jesus saying, be still, and instantly everything is calm. The sea is like glass. Other boats that were on the sea that day will never forget what's going on. They would never forget what's happening. Verse 40. He says to them, after speaking to the wind and the waves, stilling the storm, he says, why are you afraid? <laughs> Which again, I just, I think Peter probably said, uh, uh, I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> We're about to die, Jesus. Why are you afraid? And then he diagnoses their problem. He says, do you still have no faith? Another way you could ask this question is, where is your faith? Where have you placed your faith? What was your faith in? And I think we could go down the list of what the disciples had been trusting in. 
First, we trust in the weather. Hopefully the storm will pass like every other storm before it. Okay, that doesn't work. Check that one off. Next, next we're going to trust the boat. This is a strong boat. This is a boat we've been in many times before. This boat will get us out. And it starts filling up with water. Okay, cross that one off. Next, we're going to trust the sails. They will hold up and they will blow us away to safety. And the sails rip, tattered and torn, and they go, nope, not that one. Well, maybe we'll trust in the oars. Maybe we trust in our strength. Maybe we trust in our knowledge. They're trusting in everything. And then Jesus is the last person that they turn to. The disciples had no faith. And at the end of their rope, they say, Jesus, do you care? Notice they don't even say, help us. They don't say, we need your help. We trust in you. We know you can do this. They just say, you don't care. The disciples had such tiny faith. And that's why he says, where's your faith? Who's your faith in? What's your faith in? But the critical factor here is not the strength of your faith because the disciples have very weak faith. But that's okay. Weak faith, Jesus can work with. It's not the strength of your faith that matters most. It's the object of your faith that matters Imagine you're falling off a cliff. You got too close to the edge of the Grand Canyon as you were looking and you start falling to your death. And you are clawing on the wall of that canyon as hard as you can to try and slow your fall, to grab onto anything. And as you're falling, you see the branch of a tree sticking out, maybe a tree root sticking out of the canyon wall. How much faith do you have to have in that tree branch holding you up to grab onto it and have it hold you. As you're falling, are you thinking, okay, this is how much I weigh. This is the velocity with which I'm falling. This is how wide the circumference of that branch is. Now I know it'll hold me and I grab on. No, you know you're dying and any last ditch effort that you possibly can have to survive, you cling with everything you have to that branch. You don't even know if it can save you. How much faith do you have to have in the branch for it to save you? Do you have to be totally sure that it can? Of course not. You just have to have enough faith to grab on. That's because it's not the quantity of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters. It doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. All that matters is, will that branch hold you? Is it strong enough? That's why Jesus says, where's your faith? Cling to me because I'm strong enough. He's the branch. Hold on. We're falling to our death. And he says, I'm here. And so many people try to think, you know what? I'm going to figure it all out before I grab on. You're going to go to your doom. Jesus says, where's your faith? You might be here this morning and you might say, you know what? I know I struggle with faith. I know I struggle. And I would say, you know what? Stop looking inside for reasons to trust. Go to Jesus and say, help me believe. Help my unbelief. I've been working this out with my reason. I've been thinking, I've been meditating, I've been trying to go to church in hopes that a sermon will move me. I've been trying to get faith by myself. But you alone are the source of faith, so help me, I cling to you. He's asking them, where's your faith? Do you still have no faith? Where has your faith been put? 
And because of that and everything that has happened in this text, verse 41, they became very much afraid. Very much afraid. That's the word megas again. They became mega afraid. Megasphobias. They're terrified. They were afraid in the midst of the storm when they thought they were going to die. They were not megas afraid in the storm. We've seen a mega storm, a mega calm, and now a mega fear. Why? Why are they so afraid? This text always boggles my mind because I would think they'd be saying, phew, thank you, Jesus. You got us out of that. Man, I'm so thankful. Just lay down and rest. Their arms are probably sore from all the rowing that they've been doing. They're probably terrified. Can't wait to get over to the other side and be at peace and talk to our family and tell them how God preserved us. But no, not them. Now that the storm is gone, they're even more afraid. Why? They're more afraid because what's worse than having a storm outside of your boat that can kill you is having somebody inside of your boat that can stop that storm with a single word. That's terrifying. Jesus was as unmanageable as the storm itself. Jesus had infinitely more power over the storm. So the disciples knew that they had infinitely less control over Jesus than they even had over the storm. They're terrified. Who is this? But there's a huge difference because the storm doesn't love you. Nature just wears you down. But Jesus, in his infinite power, can use it all for your good because he loves you. You can say, I'm kind of scared to trust Jesus because he's out of my control. He does things that I don't understand. Why is he allowing this to happen? I don't get it. And I would say, you're right. He's out of your control and he does things that you might not understand. But just as his power is unbounded, so are his wisdom and his love. Jesus is filled with untamable power in our eyes, and he's also filled with untamable love for you and for me. And so if you have a, a God big enough, great enough, powerful enough to be mad at him because he's not stopping your suffering, even though he could, then you also have a God who's big enough, powerful enough, and great enough to have reasons for that suffering that you could never understand. Like Elizabeth Elliot once said, God is God. And since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. You hear what she's saying? God's God and I humbly serve and worship him and I submit my will to his because his will, because he's infinite and all powerful, his will is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. I might not know, but I'm going to trust him. It's like that scene that we go back to over and over again in the Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy is speaking to the beavers about Aslan, this great lion that they're about to meet. And she's terrified to meet this lion. And she says to the beavers, is he safe? I don't want to talk to a lion who could eat me, who could destroy me, who could kill me. 
So is he safe? And you remember Mr. Beaver's answer. He laughs and he says, no, he's not safe. He's the king of all beasts. He's a lion. Of course he's not safe. This Aslan, who is a Jesus-type figure, Mr. Beaver says, no, he's not safe. But then what does he say? He's good. You could trust him. You can't trust him because he's manageable and controllable. Jesus is uncontrollable to you and to me. He's not safe. And that would terrify me if he wasn't good. That would scare me to death if I didn't know that my God is a good God. But we know that he is clear as the scriptures could make it. Psalm 119 verse 68. You are good and you do good. Our God is good. First John, our study last semester, God is love. So even if he is unsafe in our minds, unmanageable, uncontrollable, we can trust him because he's good and he's loving. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, God is too wise to err, too good to be unkind. So leave off doubting him and begin trusting him. For in doing so, you will crown his head with faith. They become very much afraid and they say to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? Go back to Psalm 107. Turn to Psalm 107. This is a psalm that the disciples would have known, they would have memorized, they would have sung. This would be a a psalm that they would have sung multiple times throughout the year. And I think that somebody is thinking about this when they say, who is this? Psalm 107, verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of Yahweh. They've seen his wonders in the deep because he spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and they staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits end. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. They cried out to Yahweh. He brought them out of their distress. He calmed the storm so that the waves were hushed. They know that's what Yahweh does. And they're looking at Jesus saying, you just did what Yahweh does. That's why they're even more afraid because they know they're in the presence of Yahweh. They are in the presence of God himself. Here is a human. Jesus is truly human, fully human, 100% human. And they are thinking he's asleep. He's a human. He's a good teacher. And he does some really incredible things. But they're adding all these things up saying, wait a second, who is this guy? Because he's doing what only God can do. And I just think somebody in the boat probably said, yeah, he's done that before. Remember Mark chapter two, 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, exactly. And I'm going to prove to you that I forgave this man's sins because not only do I have the power to heal him, but I have the power to forgive him because I am God. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus can forgive sins. So Jesus must be God. The disciples are seeing Jesus do what only God can do. They've seen it before. They're going to see it again. And so they say, who is this? This is the most important question that you could ever ask. Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Who is he and what are you going to do with him? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? This brings us back to the beginning of our time together in this text. Simple question. Why does Mark include this? So many people will say that this passage is about Jesus calming the storm and how not only did he do that then, but he can do that now in your life. He can calm the storms in your life. And while that's a true statement, and I agree that that's a sub-point of this text, I don't think that's what Mark is wanting us to walk away with. I think if we said... The goal of Mark including this in his gospel is to comfort us that Jesus calms all the storms in our life. I think Mark would say, you missed the point. Yes, that's true. Amen and amen. And hold on to that and cling to that. But what's the point? The point of the story is verse 41. Are you amazed by Jesus? Are you astonished by Jesus? You have been confronted By Jesus, you've interacted with him. You've seen him. He is God. And what have you done with that reality? What have you done with Jesus? Have you rejected him? Have you accepted him? Have you submitted your will to his? Have you loved him? Have you treasured him? Have you said... I need more time. What have you done with Jesus? There's something really unusual about this text that I just love so much. Normally when we read the scriptures and we read of the disciples and the way that they interact with Jesus and other people, normally we just look at them as just a bunch of idiots, right? We just kind of point at them and go, man, why are you doing this? You're, just, you're saying dumb things, you're doing dumb things, and we just laugh at them. But I don't do that here. When I read this text, I sympathize with them. We've all been through trials, and in the midst of those trials, we've looked around and we said, Jesus, do you even care? The concern that the disciples have is that Jesus is indifferent to their pain and their suffering. They're saying, do we mean so little to us? You care more about sleep than you do about saving us. And we are tempted, just like the disciples, to say, Jesus, do you care? And maybe you're here this morning, and you would be saying the exact same thing. You are in the midst of suffering. You're in the midst of trials. You're in the midst of chaos, and you are wondering the same question. That's why when we get to the end of this text, we realize we've said the exact same thing that the disciples have said. Do you care? But we have a resource that will enable us to trust in Jesus no matter how the storm might rage, more so than they ever had. Jesus has given us a far greater reason for us to rest and trust in his care for us than the disciples ever even had. 
This storm wasn't the storm that Jesus ultimately came to confront. One day, several months after this account, Jesus will be thrown into the greatest storm that there ever could be. The storm of the just, righteous, furious wrath of God against sin. Jesus on the cross would experience all of hell itself. All of the punishment that we deserve for our sin would be thrown on him. And in the midst of that storm, Jesus would never once for a millisecond abandon you and me. But he would go through that storm. And if he wouldn't abandon you in that storm, what makes you think he's going to abandon you in the much smaller storms that you're experiencing right now? The cross and the resurrection is the ultimate and greatest proof that Jesus is good and that he loves us. That he cares. I think it's Peter who says to Jesus, do you even care? I think it's Peter who's saying that. Teacher, rabbi, do you not care that we're perishing? I question your care. And then after the cross and after the resurrection, Peter's going to take up a pen and he's going to write in 1 Peter chapter 5, brothers and sisters, cast your cares on the Lord because why? He cares for you. Peter would be here this morning saying, oh, I questioned it. It's there recorded for all eternity. I questioned his care. And then I learned at the cross that there's no reason to ever question his love or his care for me ever again. So brothers and sisters, Jesus is God. Jesus is good. Jesus is love. And Jesus cares for you. And someday he will return and he will calm every storm for all of eternity. And if you let that reality penetrate deep into your soul, you will always know that he loves you. You will always know that he cares. That's what we saying earlier. When through the deep waters, you've called me to go. I know the rivers of sorrow will not overflow because I will be with you, God says. I'll be with you. He is with us. Yes, he can fix a storm, but sometimes he doesn't but he will always be with us. And if he's with us, then we can go through anything in this life together because we're holding on to the hand of God. John Newton said it this way, with Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Father, thank you so much for this text. Thank you for the reminder confronted with the reality of our own questioning. Do you care? The reminder, yes, you care. And we're told by Peter, cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. He loves you. So Father, I pray that you would enable us to, to see your love, to sense your love, to feel your love, to know your love, to trust your love, and to believe your love, and to receive your love. What could be worse what could be more offensive to you than for us to look at the cross and say, yeah, but I'm just not sure that you love me. 
Uh, but we do that all the time. We struggle with this, so we pray. God, we believe, but help our unbelief. And God, we give thanks that you will help us in our unbelief even as we partake of communion. A reminder of what you accomplished at the cross so that we would not forget, but that we would remember and declare that you died, you rose from the dead, and you're coming back again all because you love us and you are good. Teach us now as we sing and confirm these truths to our hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I'm going to invite the men to come this morning and distribute the communion elements. They will give you a uh, piece of bread and a little cup. You can grab that as they go by. Again, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or you have questions about that, I would just encourage you, let these elements go by. They're for believers. And then come talk to somebody about the questions that you might have of Jesus and of the gospel. Come talk to somebody. But as we sing... I want to invite you to take those elements and hold them. We will partake together, so just hold them and wait while we sing. But as we sing, may we confirm these truths that we have studied together in our hearts and then prepare now with gratefulness in our souls to give thanks for the cross and the resurrection.